Well, before we look at that Bible passage, please join me in praying for God to be with us. Let's bow our heads. Luke chapter 24, verse 45 says, Then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Heavenly Father, we pray for that to happen here and now. Would our minds be opened by the Spirit of Christ so that we can understand the scriptures and be transformed as a result? We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Unless I'm mistaken, we currently have four actors in our church. And those of them who are here today will all instantly know what I mean by the green room. The green room is where actors wait before they're due to go on stage. For more than 300 years, theatre people have called that waiting room the green room. And no one is entirely sure why, what the origin of the phrase is. One theory is that the walls of the waiting room in London's Blackfriars Theatre were painted green. In another London theatre, the cockpit in court, the waiting room walls were lined with green bays, like a pool table. And it's possible that's where the term was first used. But wherever it was first used, the name has stuck. This theatre we're meeting in today has a room known as the Green Room. It's the upstairs room where children go during the service. Green rooms exist because there is a stage beyond them. Actors don't go to a green room because they just want to hang out in a green room. No, they spend time waiting in green rooms because later they will be going out on the stage. And that means their behavior in the green room is influenced by what will happen beyond the green room. They might touch up their stage makeup, or they might go over their lines one last time, or do some breathing exercises. Green room behavior is influenced by the future. It's future focused. Green room behavior makes sense in light of what is to come. And for those reasons, the green room is a picture of this world for Christians. Much of what we do in this world only makes sense in light of what lies beyond. Wholehearted Christian living is future-focused in multiple ways. It only makes sense in view of the world to come. Wholehearted Christians behave in this world like actors waiting in a green room. In their hearts and minds, they're looking ahead to somewhere else. Now, Abraham, according to Romans chapter 4, is the father of all who believe. There's an expectation expressed in Romans 4 that Christians will walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had. So it shouldn't surprise us to find Abraham demonstrating this green room behavior we've been thinking about. And that's what we see him doing in our passage today. 
There are two parts to the rest of this sermon. And the first is burying in faith. Burying in faith. At first, Abraham's behavior looks like ordinary human activity. Sarah, his beloved wife, has died. And he needs to bury her body. He says twice that he wants to bury my dead out of my sight, which seems to have been how people spoke about burial at that time. It's a memorable phrase, bury my dead out of my sight. It captures the unavoidable reality that death brings decay, and no one wants to see that happen. Burial is the answer, whether in the ground or in a tomb. Abraham is speaking to the Hittites when he says those words, one of the people groups in Canaan, and they don't find anything strange in what he says. They invite Abraham to bury Sarah in one of their tombs. So far, so normal. We sympathize with Abraham in his grief. Verse 2 speaks of his weeping. But there's no sign yet of green room behavior, activity based on faith in the life to come. That changes in verses 8 and 9. The Hittites have just told Abraham that he's welcome to bury Sarah in one of their tombs. And not just any old tomb. In verse 6, they say, bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. If Abraham simply wanted to bury his wife, he could now do so. They've offered him the choicest of their tombs. But that offer from the Hittites isn't enough for Abraham, which shows he's after something more than burial alone. Let's look down, please, to verses 8 and 9. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field for the full price. Let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Property for a burying place. That's what Abraham wants. Not just burial itself. He wants to get a piece of the land for a burying place. We know that Abraham is doing the right thing here because later in Genesis when Abraham's grandson Jacob is on his deathbed in Egypt he asks to be buried in this very same cave back in Canaan and Jacob's son Joseph the most godly of all the patriarchs agrees to do that he solemnly swears to take Jacob's body all the way from Egypt to Canaan to bury him in the cave that Abraham at this point is trying to purchase. So this cave keeps cropping up in Genesis, which shows that Abraham is doing the right thing here. He's being led by God. 
it's not always easy to tell as we read through Genesis whether someone is doing the right thing or the wrong thing. When we look at how this cave is used later in Genesis, we see that Abraham is doing the right thing, not making a mistake. But that leaves us with a puzzle. Because buying land goes against Abraham's M.O., his usual way of operating. Abraham knew he would ultimately inherit the whole of the land of Canaan. That's what God had promised him. And in next Sunday's passage, Abraham actually quotes God's land promise. He's committed it to memory. He's holding on to it. He's looking forward to its fulfillment. But Abraham has known all along that he would have to be patient. God had told him the land wouldn't even belong to his descendants until after they had been slaves for 400 years in a country not their own. Abraham had to be very patient because he knew he wouldn't inherit the land in his lifetime. It would be something that he would receive after his death. That's why he didn't go around buying land and building on it. Instead, he and his family patiently lived in tents. And that's why Abraham describes himself as a sojourner and a foreigner in verse 3. The writer of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament points out the significance of those words in verse 3. Hebrews 11 says of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they admitted they were strangers and exiles on earth. They admitted it. The next verse in Hebrews 11 then draws this conclusion. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Abraham was longing for a better country, a version of Canaan fit for God to dwell in. Canaan 2.0. That was Abraham's way of operating. Don't buy land. Live in tents. Admit to being a stranger and an exile. That's what he's done all the way through. Why then does Abraham break the habit of a lifetime and pull out his wallet to buy land. Well, Abraham is making a faith-filled statement when he buys this property, instead of simply burying Sarah in one of the Hittite tombs. Think about it. By acquiring land, he's saying, this is where we belong. By acquiring land, for bones only, Abraham is also saying the promise won't be fulfilled in our lifetimes. It's hard to imagine a more future-focused way to stake a claim to Canaan. Abraham stakes his claim on the land of Canaan with bones, Sarah's bones, and then his bones, because in Genesis 25, we discover that when Abraham himself dies, he's buried in the same cave. Of course, behind Abraham's faith-filled statement, we should see the sovereign hand of God. Up to this point, God has never allowed Abraham to buy land in Canaan. 
The closest Abraham has come to owning land before now is when King Abimelech agreed in a formal ceremony that Abraham had dug a well in Beersheba, which meant Abraham had finders keepers rights to that particular well while he lived in that region. No doubt Abraham was very glad to have use of that well, but it wasn't the same as lasting ownership of the land. So the only time God in his sovereignty permits Abraham to buy and own land is when he's buying a burial ground. The only spot on the map that Abraham can put his finger on and say, mine, is a tomb. God couldn't make it any clearer, could he? When he gave Abraham land of his own in Canaan, it wasn't land that could be enjoyed in this life. God did not want Abraham to treat this world as his true home. So when God gave Abraham an advance installment, his first parcel of land in Canaan, it's a graveyard. It's as if God is saying, look, I can do it. I can give you land in Canaan that you own, land in your name. Here's a first installment. But just to make absolutely sure that you keep your eyes fixed on the world to come, the only land I'll give you is a cemetery. The land is yours, but the zoning rules will make sure your heart stays fixed on the future. The land is yours, but it's the kind of land that will keep you looking forward to the better land that is coming. Well, let's spend some time thinking about the significance for us of Abraham's land acquisition. We've seen that his land purchase is an example of green room activity. Abraham didn't want Sarah to be buried in a Hittite tomb. He wanted her buried in his own land. So by faith, he claimed an advance installment on the land he believed would be his. Abraham wasn't just burying his wife. He was also looking ahead to the future. The tomb purchase was his way of saying, this land is ours. It's where we belong forever. Abraham engaged in green room activity, and so should we. We can follow in those footsteps. We don't need to fly to Israel and buy a cemetery plot there. In our period of salvation history, there are other ways to engage in green room activity, the kind of activity that goes with an eternal mindset. In Matthew 6, verse 20, Jesus tells his disciples, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. If you studied the life of a wholehearted Bible-believing Christian, you'd see them doing plenty of things that anyone would do, whether Christian or not, sleeping, eating, working, resting. But you'd also see them doing eternity-focused things such as praying, interceding for other believers, sharing their faith with non-Christians so that they too can believe and be saved and inherit the world to come, supporting their church financially and 
other Christian causes, serving that church in behind-the-scenes ways, and obeying God's commands, even the commands that make them stick out uncomfortably in their culture. Follow a wholehearted Christian around. Study their life. You will find plenty of green room activity, activity that only makes sense in view of the world to come. Here's a quote from an author called Randy Alcorn. Our lives have two phases, one a dot, the other a line, extending out from that dot. Our present life on earth is the dot. It begins, it ends. It's brief, but from that dot extends a line that goes on forever. That line is eternity. Alcorn goes on to say this, right now we're living in the dot. But what are we living for? The short-sighted person lives for the dot. The person with perspective lives for the line. The person who lives for the dot lives for treasures on earth that end up in junkyards. The person who lives for the line lives for treasures in heaven that will never end. I wonder if you could be engaging in more green room activity, living for the line. We've also seen that Abraham demonstrates green room living throughout his life simply by not buying land for settling down in this life, in this world. And we can follow in his footsteps there. Once again, we need to be careful when we apply that to our own period of salvation history. There's nothing wrong with owning property instead of renting. But it's easy to set your hope on a vision of life in this world. Your own place, your own land, everything just as you want it. And if our hope gets stuck on that vision of how we want things in this life, we need to learn from Abraham. Hebrews 11 verse 16 says he was longing for a better country. And so should we. Listen again to a line we heard in our first Bible reading from 1 Peter chapter 1 in the New Testament, our own period of salvation history. It says this, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus is revealed, his people will, will receive grace upon grace. We'll receive our inheritance, the better country that Abraham was longing for. Let's set our hope upon that inheritance, that grace. When people, set our, when people set their hope on things, they do that by thinking about them, dwelling on them in their thoughts. So what will that eternal inheritance be like? 
Good to think about it. It's described in 2 Peter chapter 3 as a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. In Revelation 21, the apostle John adds further details. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That's the grace we'll receive when Jesus is revealed. Have you set your hope on that fully? If I inspect my own heart, I find that I am looking forward to that future very much, but I'm not sure I've set my hope on it fully. Instead, I think I'm still overly invested in the things of this world. It's right to enjoy the things of this world if God has given us good things. It's right to enjoy them. But I know my heart sometimes grips them too tightly. How about your heart? Are there things in this current world that you consider absolutely indispensable for your well-being? I wonder what comes to mind in response to that question. Whatever comes to your mind when you think of things that you consider absolutely indispensable for your well-being, could it be the case that you need to start holding those things more loosely in view of what is to come? The Christian whose hope is set fully on the grace to be given when Jesus is revealed will hold the things of this world loosely. No one has demonstrated a more committed green room mindset than God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not look around at the green room of this current world and think, now where shall I settle down? Instead, according to Luke 9 verse 51, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus knew what was waiting for him there. He had already told the disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. Jesus knew what was waiting for him in Jerusalem and yet he set his face to go there because he was looking forward to the joy beyond. And even though Jesus' death on the cross was unique, because he alone took God's punishment for sin in our place, we can still follow Jesus' example of looking ahead to the joy beyond. Hebrews 12 begins with these words, Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. For inspiration, the writer of Hebrews turns to Jesus. The next verse says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Both Abraham and Jesus demonstrate this green room living, activity that makes sense in view of what is to come. 
They both demonstrate the green room mindset that looks forward with hope to future joy. By the power of the Spirit, we can follow in those footsteps. It's time for the second part of the sermon, which will be briefer than the first part. The first part of the sermon was burying in faith. The second part is buying in faith. Buying in faith. We won't be looking at why Abraham buys Ephron's cave. We've already considered that. But how Abraham buys the cave, the way he buys it, the manner in which he makes this purchase. It's another example of green room living, living in light of what's to come, like an actor in a green room preparing to go on the stage. Abraham, by this point, has enormous wealth. He's had at least one highly impressive military victory, and he's also famous for his spiritual experiences. The Hittites call him a prince of God in verse 5. Another man with that kind of resume might have acted with swagger and arrogance. And yet throughout the buying process, Abraham displays amazing humility. He's truly meek among the Hittites. And meekness, gentle humility, is a quality that goes with the green room mindset. Abraham was longing for a better world. And with that hope in his heart, he could afford to treat the Hittites as more important than himself. His humility is seen first in verse 3. He could have come before the Hittites with a display of strength and power, but instead he highlights his weakness. I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. That was true. Abraham isn't displaying false humility, but it's striking to see Abraham placing that information front and center right at the start. He doesn't try to hide his weakness. Then in verse 7, Abraham bows down to the Hittites, and he bows down before them again later in verse 12. It's a way of saying, you guys are the boss around here, not me. It's the most vulnerable posture Abraham could take up before them. When we look at Abraham's words, we find the, the verbal equivalent of bowing down in verses 8 and 9. Abraham says, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field for the full price. Let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron is there among the Hittites at the time, and Abraham is no doubt aware of Ephron's presence, but he makes his appeal to the whole group of Hittites as a mark of respect. This part of Canaan is their region. They are the people of the land, according to verse 7. If this purchase is really going to stick, Abraham will need that whole people group to approve. So he makes his request of them in their hearing. In verse 11, Ephron proposes to give Abraham not only the cave, but also the field. He says, in the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. That may seem enormously generous at first reading, but there are clues here that verse 11 is really the opening move in a chess game that Ephron plans to win. By offering the field along with the cave, Ephron is signaling that if he wants to get the cave, Abraham 
will have to pay for the field as well. And it doesn't take long for Efron to name his price for the whole package, cave plus field, 400 shekels of silver. Later in the Bible, Jeremiah buys a field for 17 shekels of silver. So 400 shekels was almost certainly enormously more than Ephron's field was actually worth. Abraham would have known that he was being overcharged here. The Hittites would have known that Abraham was being overcharged. Abraham would have known that the Hittites knew that he was being overcharged, and yet Abraham meekly pays the full amount. He must have been conscious that the Hittites would be laughing about this for weeks to come, but he goes ahead and pays that enormous sum of money anyway. Abraham can evidently afford to pay it, and more importantly, more significantly, he can afford to let Ephron and the Hittites come out on top here. What does it matter if he loses a power play in this current world? He's going to inherit the whole of Canaan. He's looking forward to the better country that's coming. He has a green room mindset. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. He expects that his followers will be meek, humble. Jesus' followers don't need to strive aggressively for rewards in the here and now because we will have the whole earth in the future. Being meek doesn't mean never sticking up for yourself. On one occasion, the Apostle Paul wisely avoids being flogged by pointing out that he's a Roman citizen and because of that status, he shouldn't be flogged. But generally speaking, followers of Jesus are willing to get the raw end of the deal because they're looking ahead to their reward. They might be humbly taking an insult without responding in kind or getting lumbered with the uncomfortable middle seat in the back of a car or quietly doing a roommate's housekeeping duties when they've forgotten to do them. Believers with a green room mindset can cope with those humbling situations because our eyes are on a future reward beyond this world. VIP red carpet treatment in this world doesn't seem so essential when your hope is set fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus is revealed. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. He's talking about himself. He was the promised Messiah, the King of Kings. And yet he says he did not come to be served, but to serve. He says more. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. There has never been a greater act of humility or meekness than Jesus' death on the cross. It is only because of the meekness of the cross that we have an eternal inheritance to look forward to. It's only because of the meekness of the cross where Jesus lovingly paid the price for other people's sins that we can see this world as a room where we wait 
for the better land that is coming. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to confess to you that all too often we don't see this world as a waiting room. Instead, we become thoroughly invested, overly invested in the things of this world. We neglect our hope in the better land that is coming. Please revive that hope within us. Make it lively in our hearts and minds. We pray that our thoughts would be on the world to come. Strengthen our faith in the truth of your promise. And we pray that you would show us ways to live with that future world in view, to do things in this life that make sense in view of the next. We're conscious of our weakness, Father. We pray you would help us by your Spirit to honour Jesus in this way. And we thank you for him and the meekness displayed at the cross. Amen.